Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. My conservative team and I have forced Justin Trudeau into a temporary but humiliating climb down today. Trudeau desperately wanted to ban hunting rifles. Not only did he send a liberal MP in to throw a sucker punch at our lawful and licensed firearms owners by banning their hunting rifles, he was asked specifically if that was his goal, and he said yes. The story made uh, headlines yesterday, and it's headline material today. The Liberals calling for a truce on Bill C-21 and removing the amendments on the gun legislation which infuriated Canadian men and women, law-abiding men and women, amendments which would have declared illegal hunting rifles and shotguns, declared hunting rifles and shotguns illegal, and uh, which Canadian firearms owners only became licensed to own after completing a firearms training course and completing a test requiring an 80% pass mark. In addition, the licensing process requires each prospective firearms owner to disclose very personal information. So now they've backed off on this because they didn't have the political clout. The NDP weren't going to support the Liberals. The Bloc were not going to support the Liberals. And certainly the Conservatives had no intention. You heard Pierre Polyev at the beginning of the program. Tony Bernardo is the executive director of the Canadian Shooting Sports Association. He joins me on the Roy Green Show. So, Tony, it comes right down to um, Mr. Trudeau and his party. They had no choice. They didn't have the votes and they didn't have the public support. Well, that's, that's right. And, and certainly uh, public support to get rid of this has certainly ballooned in the last couple of days, right? Uh, talk to us about that, please. <laughs> I had to use the word balloon, sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was, I was just talking to Tom on the other side of the glass, so I missed, I missed it. It's good one, Tony. There's one on the scoreboard for you. Thank you, thank you. Well, what, what happened, okay, was the, the government right now has four gun control initiatives on the go. And, and people don't understand this because it's, it's almost like a, it's a giant running monologue. And, uh, you know, with the, the CBC out there, uh, you know, honking up every single thing the government does, making it seem like it's all just and fine, uh, people haven't really understood the, the stuff that's playing out. So first of all, there are, like I said, four gun control initiatives. Two of them were removed yesterday. Okay, one of them was a blanket ban on all firearms that are center fire and semi-automatic. Now, this blanket ban would go on presumably in perpetuity. Uh, However, what it failed to neglect in is that there have been hunting firearms made like this since 1903. And for the vast preponderance of shotguns used for waterfowl shooting are semi-automatic. They, they use those because it softens the recoil. The action of the firearm soaks up some of the recoil. And, and this, this encompassed, first of all, like hundreds, maybe thousands of different makes and models. 
Then they added the Second Amendment, which was called G46. And G46 included 400 pages of individual makes and models that were going to be uh, added to the prohibited list, most of which were hunting firearms. So despite the government proudly proclaiming that there were no hunting firearms involved, then Trudeau backtracking on that and saying, well, yeah, there's hunting firearms, but we intended to ban those ones. Now they backtracked again and said, oh, gee, we, we were wrong because hunting is an honorable tradition in Canada. We wouldn't want to mess with our tradition. So what they, uh, what they encountered was tremendous pushback from yeah. gun owners in this country. And, you know, you and I have said this so many times. People who own firearms legally in Canada have jumped through hoops willingly, have, have completed the, the firearms training course, have taken the tests, have provided very personal information, done so very willingly. And the vast majority, I would suggest, are complying with laws, storage laws, keeping the firearm separate from the ammunition, keeping a trigger lock, maybe having a gun safe and a trigger lock. People are very responsible. But it's the criminal element that is targeted, supposedly, by the politicians. That's their supposed target. But the people who are being affected most directly are the people who we just we just described, the, the law-abiding um, citizens. And, and it disturbs me, Tony, that we have to that we have to see the see Mr. Blair, who was the former chief of police in Toronto, perpetuating this myth that they're going after the criminals by by this kind of legislation. That, that's right, and 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 the other two gun control efforts that are happening right now, the first one is a what they call the ban on assault weapons, of which there is no such thing. Okay, it was it's just a media term they made up, and. This, this ban on so-called assault weapons includes hundreds of hunting firearms. In, in fact, that first ban, the one in May 2020, which is still only an order in council, it's not been enshrined in legislation, that particular ban got my deer hunting rifles. So let me, let, me, let, me, so let, let me just ask you this question. That 2020 order in council... Does that, in fact, are those those firearms on that list, are they effectively banned at this time? Uh, they are effectively banned. 2,150 makes them Okay. All. People need to be clear yeah. on that. But, but, but they've not been collected. So for three years, they've been banned, and they've been sitting in our, in our gun safes and gun rooms, and they have not been collected by the government, not, not any of them. And where's the danger? We still have them. There's no danger now because there wasn't any danger then. Tony, I have some specific questions for you that are going to be of real interest to people who own firearms or people who have a specific interest in this particular case and this story. Now, there are firearms that are either prohibited or restricted in Canada and have been for many years. Remind us of what they are. Okay, first of all, all handguns have been restricted and registered there are huge numbers of firearms that were caught in prohibition orders back 30 years ago. Those are all still on the prohibited list. Then there is the May 2020 order in council guns. That's another 2,150 approximately makes and models. And then there is now handguns, which is what Bill C-21 is originally about and what they've done 
is being banned the purchase, sale, and trade of all handguns in Canada. We get to keep them. We're talking over a million firearms. We get to keep them because apparently in our possession, that represents no danger. Okay, so now the lists for these firearms, they're available where? If somebody's not sure whether they should have this a certain firearm or not, where are they going to find the information? <laughs> Good luck. Um, usually what they do is they call one of the associations like ours. Okay. And we're able to give them the information because the RCMP has repeated, repeatedly declared that they're under no duty or obligation to inform the general public of this stuff. That's okay. not their job. So what does it mean now, what happened yesterday... What does it mean to the Canadian gun owner or the person who has just um, acquired a license and is interested in buying a firearm but isn't sure how to proceed? What does yesterday mean to that person who may be uh, interested in hunting or just wants to purchase a firearm? What does yesterday mean to these people? Well, what it means is, is there are many more models and makes of firearms that are open for purchase again. Mm-hmm. And uh, people can go out and they can purchase a semi-automatic firearm that they can use as a, a hunting rifle or even a competition rifle. Because many competition rifles, as I said before, um, semi-automatic actions have less recoil. So if you're out there shooting uh, shotgun sports where you might be firing several hundred rounds in one day, that can make a big difference at the end of the day by how beaten up you feel. Okay, right? what do you say? What do you say to the person who really is afraid of firearms? Who's really afraid of firearms being in the possession of individuals? Genuinely has concern, and and wants to express that concern. What do you say to the person? What can you say that's maybe reassuring to that person? And we talk about the uh, the the uh, course that you have to take. The uh, the uh, questionnaires you have to fill out, all the information you have to provide. But what do you say to that person, Tony? Well, th- there's a number of things. First, they need to educate themselves as to what is really the situation with firearms in Canada. And, and a quick soundbite for that person is that our association provides $5 million a year of primary liability insurance to each one of our members for less than $10 a year. Now, your doctor or your lawyer pays thousands of dollars a year for liability insurance. We pay 10 bucks. Insurance companies don't deal in conjecture. Insurance companies deal in numbers. We're very safe. We can prove it. Do you expect that Mr. Trudeau and his party will circle around again and come back to the amendments in Bill C-21? Absolutely. They've even stated as much. Uh, I mean, really, uh, towards the end of the day yesterday, Minister Mendocino was saying that this is just a regroup. No, I understand. I understand they say it. Sometimes it's a face-saving move, right? But do you expect them to actually do it? None of the political parties sided with them. They had uh, groups across the country, not only firearms owners, uh, were opposed to them, making it very clear that they did not uh, approve. And they're sliding in the polls. So I'm just wondering whether that's just bravado or trying to save face or whether you expect that they will, in fact, circle around and try again. Well, I, I expect both, actually. I mean, if the intent is to go to an election mm-hmm. anytime soon, I think they'll probably avoid the whole thing and just see if and just go away for a while. Um, I also don't expect that any of the ones that are prohibited will be confiscated 
anytime soon. Um, however, if they decide they're going to try to stay around, um, I think that as soon as things stabilize a bit politically, they'll be right back at it again. Is it true that uh, the sales of firearms um, took off tremendously as far as numbers are concerned after the introduction of C-21? Well, well absolutely. I mean, just to say that they took off dramatically is understatement. Um, they sold more firearms between last spring and this fall, more, more handguns specifically, than we would normally sell in three years. As Global News reported, uh, the Trudeau government tabled that uh, bill, which will delay by a year, an expansion of medically-assisted dying to people with mental disorders as uh, their only underlying condition. So the expansion of the bill is going to be delayed until the 17th of March, 2024. We've talked a lot about medical assistance in dying, and we will again tomorrow. We have a guest who will be joining us who faced that very reality within his family and uh, recently. But we've, we've talked a lot about medical assistance in dying. We've talked to patients who wish to exercise that option. And uh, we've talked to lawyers, talked to politicians over the years. And uh, I can go back to 1990, probably 1991 or 1992, when I first heard of Sue Rodriguez, a British Columbia woman who had ALS and uh, was petitioning for a physician-assisted death. It was called assisted suicide in, uh, in those days. And uh, Ms. Rodriguez's case wound up in front of the Supreme Court of Canada. And on the 30th of September, 1993, by a five to four majority, the Supreme Court disagreed or did not allow um, Ms. Rodriguez a legal physician-assisted death, five to four. As I said previously, if it had been five to four the other way, our lives would be very different. We'd have a completely different perspective on medical-assisted death from what we experience and what we have now, how we see things. Chris Considine is one of Canada's most successful and prominent lawyers, and he represented Sue Rodriguez in that uh, groundbreaking case. And I spoke many times leading up to that September 30th uh, decision by the Supreme Court of Canada with Mr. Considine about uh, Ms. Rodriguez. And I still think to this day, so, so 30 years later, that uh, Mr. Considine had drafted legislation which would, in my view, have satisfied the parameters, the requirements, the, um, the humanity of choosing a physician-assisted death. Chris Considine uh, practices law in Victoria, British Columbia. He is considered one of the best in the, in the country and one of the best in the world. And uh, accomplished mountaineer, and he joins us. Chris, it's, uh, it's been a long time. I hope you're well. Thank you so much for the time today. Roy, it's a pleasure to be with you and your listeners today. So 30 years ago, almost 30 years ago, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled against Sue Rodriguez in the case you presented before the court. Would you remind us, please, of the argument that you made on behalf of Ms. Rodriguez? The argument, essentially, was that a person who was terminally ill should be able to have as an option the right to physician-assisted death, if that person wished, in order to not prolong the suffering that they were experiencing, such as loss of dignity, pain, etc., as the disease progressed. Typical diseases would be um, painful cancers and bad cancers. 
we proposed, Roy, that uh, the patient would have to demonstrate that physical disease, that they were in the final stages, that there would be two physicians who would have certified that. The physicians would also certify that all options had been explained to the patient. And at that time, we also proposed that there be supervision from uh, an institution such as a coroner's office to ensure that there wouldn't be any improprieties. That was a tremendous amount of public interest and public in- input in this case, as uh, families actually started to talk about their own internal situations. And I ended up speaking with uh, people who wanted to physician assist to death and were hoping the Supreme Court would side with the uh, Ms. Rodriguez, do you remember what the prevailing opinion was in the country at the time? Yes, uh, it was. Um, the polling was showing somewhere between seventy-nine and eighty-one percent across the country were supportive of Sue Rodriguez's proposal. Uh, Parliament was afraid of it because we had talked to Parliament. I'd been to the Senate uh, hearings on it. I'd spoken, sent letters to the Prime Minister, but they were afraid to make that political decision from their perspective. On the other hand, the Supreme Court of Canada showed courage by uh, both the Chief Justice of the time, Chief Justice Lemaire, and subsequently uh, Chief Justice Bev McLaughlin and two other justices saying, no, it should be something that all Canadians should be able to have as an option. The reason that we lost ultimately was because uh, the justices who voted against allowing it at that stage felt that Parliament should deal with it. And, of course, Parliament didn't deal with it until 20 years later when they were forced again to deal with it. Yeah, I remember now that you mention it, that Parliament did hand it off. They just did not want to make the decision. And it was a political uh, move that they engaged. And it it was inappropriate for them to act the way they did. Your conversations with Sue Rodriguez at the time, and particularly after the court decision, how did how did how did uh, how did that go, Chris? It was um, you know, Sue and I listened to the decision coming down, obviously, and she her comment was, "How is it that one vote should decide my fate?" And that was how she felt. Uh, I think also I'd like to just step aside for a moment and say how courageous she was. Because she had uh, led this uh, proposal, and she had decided not to go the U.S. route, which was the Dr. Kevorkian route in those days. Uh, And she very bravely went public because I asked her why, and she said, because I I think that I'm a Canadian, that all Canadians should have this option if they wish to do so. Not everybody has to take it, but it's something that if they feel it's there, for them that it will, may well relieve suffering for those who wish to have it. You mentioned Dr. Kevorkian. Uh, I actually interviewed him in, uh, I think, in the late 1980s. For people who were not av- uh, familiar with Kevorkian, he was a, an actual doctor. I, th- I don't know if he'd been a pathologist or not, but he he drove around in a Volkswagen bus, and he actually ended people's lives in that Volkswagen bus, and he was he was charged several times in in the U.S. and convicted um, what was it like for you as a lawyer to argue the case? Because I, I can only imagine that you must have become personally uh, involved. And, and I remember Sue Rodriguez being such a, as you said, very brave woman who, who chose to be very public and fight for herself and fight for all Canadians. What was it like for you? 
It was fascinating for me. It was um, my grandmother had had ALS, which is the disease from which Sue Rodriguez suffered. It's a very debilitating disease because mentally and cognitively you're intact usually, but the motor neurons gradually cease firing to different muscle groups so that you end up being essentially paralyzed and in both in actions uh, as well as ability to swallow food, speak, etc. So when I met Sue and she asked me if I could represent her, uh, it was something that I very much understood what her future ultimate fate would be. Acting for her was an honor, but it, it was also unique in most lawyers' experience because you're helping to decide somebody's options and make and making sort of recommendations to the court and to the patient, which are really something that affect all of us ultimately, whether it be for ourselves or family members or close friends. So it was something of a remarkable experience, uh, remarkable to work with Sue and so many Canadians who expressed support for her, as well as the media across this country. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the, the made legislation now and the issue as it exists and the uh, involvement again of Parliament and the debate to and froing, what do you make of it? Well, I'm glad that there's a good debate going on because it's important. It's such an important issue for all Canadians. I welcome the delay with respect to made for mental health at this time because we do not have adequate mental health resources across this country. And it will also, with bearing in mind the present state of the lack of resources in this country for help for those with mental illness, we uh, would almost set a discriminatory type of situation in which those in the rural areas who have no access or very limited access to mental health uh, medicine and psychologists and psychiatrists would be felt left as more in despair than those in the cities who have perhaps more access. So I think it's very important to make sure that the options are in place for those with mental health illnesses before they necessarily make a decision to take the main route. As you know, in the physical illness side, the options are explained often to a person in terms of um, carrying on, living, what sort of treatment options are possible to prolong life, etc., as opposed to having made, so they're properly informed. In the mental health field, it's a much different situation. In addition, we will need the physicians to be really good gatekeepers for mental health issues, and consequently, I think there needs to be really good uniform standards across the country. From what I gather, those are not really in place yet. We just have a few seconds, uh, Chris. Patients who wish to die with assistance, they'll find a way. Yes, they will, and Sue Rodriguez did. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. 
After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Healthcare. It is the number one issue for people in Canada. And there was just a news story today. I uh, tweeted out at the Roy Green Show. I tweeted out the link to a global news story about cancer care and how cancer patients are not receiving the care that they absolutely desperately require. In the numbers they they require it. It's just the reality in our healthcare system now. So next week, Mr. Trudeau is going to be meeting with the premiers. Starts on Tuesday. And you can bet the federal government is going to deliver more funding to the provinces, which really isn't just the answer. Because there's only one taxpayer who's going to be responsible for whatever monies shift from Ottawa to provincial capitals. How will additional billions of dollars directed in the same manner to the same governments to be administered by the same bureaucracies improve a horribly broken delivery system these governments and bureaucracies are ultimately responsible for? How's it going to change things for the better? By the way, when we talk about privatizing healthcare delivery or private insurance, health insurance, many people become indignant, upset, afraid. Let me read you something from the Canadian Medical Association Journal, September 13th, 2005. Citing the recent Supreme Court of Canada ruling and concerns about lengthy wait times, the Canadian Medical Association has endorsed private health insurance and private sector health services for patients who don't get timely treatment through the public system. That's the Canadian Medical Association goes on to say following a heated debate on August 17th at CMA General Council in Edmonton, 64% of delegates voted in favor of the motion, 35% opposed it. Dr. Albert Schumacher, CMA's outgoing president, said the move totally reinforced the June 9 Supreme Court judgment that struck down a ban on private health insurance in Quebec. So private health insurance became okay in Quebec in 2005. Not in the rest of the country, but in Quebec. And we're going to get into that in the next half hour. But let me just repeat what I said. This is from the Canadian Medical Association Journal, September 13, 2005. Quoting, Citing the recent Supreme Court of Canada ruling and concerns about lengthy wait times, the Canadian Medical Association has endorsed private health insurance and private sector health services for patients who don't get timely treatment through the public system. Now, just because the word private is used, it doesn't mean that there'll be lack of access for people who can't afford to pay. There are formulas that can be put in place. We're joined by Dr. Brian Day, Cambry Surgery Center in Vancouver, Cambry Surgery Center in Vancouver, a private care surgical center. Dr. Day is embroiled in a legal battle with the province of British Columbia and, by extension, provincial governments from coast to coast, by making the case that each Canadian should have the option to purchase private health insurance. Now, the B.C. Supreme Court ruled against Dr. Day last summer 
He's hoping that the Supreme Court of Canada will hear his case on appeal. Dr. Day, how are you? And what is the uh, what is the word from the Supreme Court? Do you know yet whether they'll hear your appeal? No, we hope to hear within the next month or two. Um, it, but we haven't. We have not heard. We have filed leave to appeal, and we just hope that um, you know the same court gave um, Quebecers the right to private health insurance. I I I, I hope that they at least look, agree to hear the arguments as to why we should have the same rights if we live outside of Quebec that they that court gave to Quebecers. I I hope they'll listen to the arguments. Yeah, and the court gave the right to Quebecers. Because the Shaouli case, Mr. Shaouli was a Quebecer, and so they limited it to the province of Quebec, and they limited it to certain procedures. But the Supreme Court, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, the correct the Supreme Court of Canada decided that Quebecers could purchase private health insurance and they could access private health care under those particular parameters. Well, actually, they didn't limit it. The Supreme Court didn't limit the number of procedures. It was the Quebec government. Um, apparently pressured by public sector unions that limited the number of procedures, but there'd be nothing to stop an insurance company going into Quebec and offering insurance, health insurance for, for every everything. And, and as you know, uh, as you know, Roy, this is a right that every citizen in every country on the planet has. That there is no country in the world where private health insurance is illegal, except. So, Dr. Day, in, in, in layman's terminology, so we all understand, what is the case you are making and how would it affect the healthcare patient who is not getting the service that he or she requires, including life-saving surgeries? Would, your, would, would what you're proposing change that dynamic? It absolutely would. And the evidence is clear from the rest of the world. So, you know, the, a group called the Commonwealth Fund, working with the Canadian Institute for Health Information, has the data. Uh, they looked at um, 10 countries, 11 countries, including the U.S., but 10 of those countries had um, were developed countries like Canada, wealthy countries that, um, that have universal health insurance. So we're not talking about the United States. So of 10 countries, developed countries with universal healthcare where everyone was covered, um, Canada um, spends the most money and has the worst access and the worst health outcomes. So we're bottom of the pack. And so, you know, I, I, I use the hockey analogy that if you were the 10th ranked team in the League of 10, um, wouldn't you be wanting to look at what the top two or three teams are doing? And, and we haven't done that. Mm-hmm. So if the Supreme Court... Here's your appeal, and if they decide for you, then Canadians will be allowed, as Quebecers are now, to purchase health insurance, private health insurance, and to access private care and private treatment, yes? Yes, but um, as you know, you can already buy private health insurance for for services that are covered in in all of those other 10 countries, like prescription drugs and ambulances and Physiotherapy. Employers do that all the time. Are essential services, dentistry. These are essential services that some are bureaucrats have arbitrarily designated them to be unnecessary. Um, but that doesn't make sense. So, so the argument against you is consistently that, or your position or your, your approach, 
is that the public sector would suffer because doctors, healthcare professionals would be poached by the private system from the public system for extra money and only the wealthy or people who could afford um, insurance would be able to get the gold-plated, if you will, health coverage. Yeah, and the reason that's not true is the evidence um, shows that not to be the case around the world. I mean, we don't have to go on theories. We know, for instance, in Canada, just, you know, Premier Ford got into trouble in Ontario with, with people saying, oh, this is an awful thing, but oh, we're going to lose nurses and doctors. Well, it, it's the exact opposite. There are, in just a single Detroit hospital region, there are a, a, a thousand Ontario graduated uh, RNs working in one, just one district. They are leaving the, the, the public system there because uh, it's a toxic, the hospitals are to, a toxic environment. And, you know, we have at, at our um, private clinic in Vancouver where we treat you know, exempted groups, uh, including um, workers, work, injured workers, uh, non-residents, judges, I might add, and federal employees of all types. And we 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 have seven, about 78 visiting surgeons that only go to our clinic when they've used all their public time, which is rationed in the public system. 23 of those would not be in Canada if it were not for the additional operating time that we offer them. And, that, and that's why we set up our clinic in, in the 90s, because we were being rationed, we, we were suffering from rationed access to operating time. And yet we had, you know, I had 400 patients waiting um, on my list and only five hours a week of operating time mm-hmm. in the public hospital. I should have pointed out that you were a past president of the Canadian Medical Association as well. Canadians are dying, waiting for services. That's happening. And, and I've talked to the current and immediate past presidents of the Canadian Medical Association, and in recent weeks, and they agree, that is happening daily in this country. Um, a representative... 11,500 a year die on public wait lists in Canada, right? How many? 11,500. And, oh. and that doesn't count this probably much greater That's number disturbing. that don't even make it to the hospital wait list, because you have to wait, you have to get a referral from a family doctor, and there's a shortage of family doctors, and you then have to um, get uh, see a specialist, and then you have to go on the wait list. So there are people that don't get don't get to the wait list. And and I should add, the doctor shortage is in family physicians. We don't have a shortage of specialists. We in fact have unemployed specialists because they can't get operating room time. Okay. And again, let's emphasize the shortage of doctors was created by governments in the nineties by governments in the 90s, cutting back medical schools by up to 30%. When Talk I came to Canada in the 70s, we were second in the world in doctors per population. Now we're 69th in the world. And this was created by the very governments that are now using that as a lame excuse. Dr. Day, in the three minutes or so we have left, for the person who says, all right, so let's say the Dr. Day system is approved by the Supreme Court and Canada um, outside Quebec, Canadians have the same rights as Quebecers have um, have obtained, have received or received in 2005. What happens to the person who is economically challenged, not doing well, and needs health care? Does what you're proposing isolate that person from the health care system? 
Well, absolutely not, because what the government can do is if, if those patients are suffering, they can pay the premiums or subsidize the premiums. That's what they do in Australia. We, we, we the, you know, I think this has to be combined with a care guarantee whereby, which, which ha, you know, they have a, a partial guarantee in Quebec and they have such guarantees in other countries. Switzerland, you're yes. You're waiting beyond the time. The, Sw- the Swiss do that, don't they? Pardon? The Swiss do that. Yes, but, but the Swiss... The Swiss pay for low-income, um, uh, you know, the, the low-income groups to have private insurance. So does the Dutch. So do the. So there's nothing to stop a government from um, from funding the premiums. And uh, you know, the other pressure that comes on them when you end their monopoly is that you've exposed the monopoly, you've exposed the performance level, and it shames the government into. Performing better, so the but, block funding system whereby is it, that we have uniquely in Canada yeah. is unique to Canada for, for in terms of OECD countries, where every patient is using up uh, an institution's money. But how does bringing them funds? How does funds. how does private insurance uh, in, increase the availability or the presence of? of doctors and nurses and paramedics, how does private insurance create the dynamic which is more friendly to the patient? Well, because um, it's, you know, we have a monopoly in Canada, Canada from, uh, in terms of medically necessary services, and there is no monopoly that serves the person in, uh, who, wants, you know, serve, who wants the service. There is no monopoly, that, uh, and, and a government monopoly is a, an especial example of that. It's why we have you know, 11 times as many public health bureaucrats mm-hmm. on, on a per capita yeah. basis as Germany does. We need to spend the money on healthcare. We need to increase medical school uh, intake. We've got yeah. 500 young Canadians going to foreign medical schools, and we won't even let them come back. And it's, um, you know, it, it's a bizarre system based on the fact that we, the government has taken the position in, in our legal action uh, that doctors use up, and doctors and nurses are undesirable because they increase the cost by treating patients. And, you know, that's the bizarre situation that you're in when you have a, a monopoly with, with fixed funding. So, right. so we, we, the, the other thing that you know, we should end on is um, private clinics have much lower complication rates than public, the public hospitals do, up to 40 times. Okay, Dr. Day, I have to I have to stop you this time, but I, I hope you'll come back. There's a lot more to talk about. Balloons. The balloon. The Chinese weather, no make that the surveillance balloon. As it continues its track high above the United States, and uh, particularly where US nuclear missile silos are located, Montana. The United States, I understand, uh, sent out an F-22 Raptor fighter plane to observe the balloon over which tensions between China and the United States have sufficiently been raised that American Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has canceled his planned trip to Beijing. Dr. Christian Luprecht joins us, professor at Queen's University and the Royal Military College, Eisenhower Fellow at the NATO Defense College in Rome, Monk Senior Fellow in Security and Defense at the MacDonald Laurier Institute. His new book is Polar Cousins, Comparing Antarctic and Arctic Geostrategic Futures, published by the University of Calgary Press, and it's available open access. So, 
Uh, Christian, where where do we start with this uh, pu- public relations disaster for for China? But where do we begin the, with the story? Well, I think one of the things that we can learn here is that our adversaries are very much interested in our continent. And presumably you're interested in our continent for one of two reasons, uh, because you're interested in the technology that we have, or because you're interested in the ability to make this continent a target. Um, And of course, that's an interest because that would allow adversaries to constrain our policymaking. So imagine that China can threaten that uh, if the US or Canada makes this or that policy decision, they might get hit by a Chinese intercontinental ballistic missile. um, And they can demonstrate that that missile would actually be able to get through our defenses um, then that would mean that we've effectively constrained the ability of the democratic will to make sovereign decisions in Canada and the United States. And so I think we should all be alert to the fact uh, that Chinese spying is not innocuous. Why a balloon? So balloons have been a favorite spying tool for over 100 years. Uh, they're relatively inexpensive. You can pile all sorts of technology onto it. They're relatively slow, so they can hover over a target. Um, they fly relatively high, so they wouldn't necessarily be detected uh, by regular ground radar that would be looking for planes and the like. Um, and it's uh, it would be hard initially, at least, to determine who would have sent the balloon up because unless you've been able to track the flight path of that balloon and see where it was launched or you're able to track the data flow from the balloon, for instance, back to China, uh, it would be difficult to attribute who exactly would be sending the balloon over North America. So they're obviously not trying to hide what they're up to. So, so what happens now? I mean, the Americans have said Antony Blinken's not going to go on his visit to China, but that they will reschedule this. What's, what, are, what are the next steps that uh, take place? It's not unusual for tit-for-tat games to develop between countries. Yeah, I think you've caught this exactly right. So this it's no coincidence in my view that this happens the same week that the United States announces that it has struck a deal with the Philippines to have forward basing rights in up to five bases there. Um, any sort of game, including that, that involves Taiwan, necessarily includes the Philippines, if you look at it on a map in terms of the uh, strategic proximity. And so I think this is a way for China to sort of try to stick the finger in America's eye. And somebody I think, who was very bright here, either in the Department of Defense or in the White House, realized that they could turn this into a communications disaster for China uh, by essentially making, because this was a secondary story in the news, right? There's sort of this balloon that's over North America. It might be Chinese. Uh, and then, of course, the moment Anthony Blinken canceled his visit to China, it became front page news and everybody's talking about it. So somebody figured out that they could put uh, Chinese spying um, and the various techniques that China uses onto front page news across the world, which means every country is now going to be looking over their shoulder, wondering what are the Chinese doing in their backyard. And of course, it happens to coincide with at least one other balloon over Latin America. This is not the first time that the Chinese have sent um, various uh, instruments for spying over North America. But I think this was a propitious moment for the Americans to publicize this in a way that the whole world would take notice. And you can see by the way that the Chinese narrative seems to shift every day uh, that the Chinese are having a hard time trying to get a handle on this story. And is this why the, the Americans haven't shot it down? Yeah, there, now there's a great uh, propaganda tool for the United States. 
And so my guess is they're going to be happy to leave it up there and they're going to be happy to keep this conversation going uh, as long as they, uh, they're able to keep it in the news. Um, so uh, uh, I think we'll probably be continue to talk about this for, for quite a few days in the media. And that's ultimately, I think, the objective now that the Americans have neutralized uh, whatever spying the balloon was apparently engaged in. So the Americans have replied the way they want to and intend to. Now, what about us? So this balloon was over our territory for some considerable period of time. We understand that pilots were told to look out for it. At the same time, we're told the thing was so much higher than any any plane flies. Anyway, pilots were told to look out for it. And what did we do? We, we called the Chinese ambassador in for a talking to. Sounds like we're... We're kind of weak. Well, if we were on TV right now, you'd see me chuckle. So, look, uh, this balloon flies over the Arctic, over Alaska, of course, so we had advance warning. It crosses all of Canada. It looks along a flight path along BC, which would have likely taken several days across Canadian airspace uh, and, and sovereign territory. We say nothing. And the United States publishes, uh, publicizes it once it gets into Montana because they realize that people are spotting this thing. And so they're worried probably about conspiracy theories and so forth. So they're kind of making public what's happening here. Uh, so first, of course, Canada doesn't make any noise about it at all. And once the Americans publicize it, only once the American publicize it, not once it enters our space, then we call in the Chinese ambassador. Nothing in terms of the statements that we get from Anthony Blinken about uh, that we're outraged about the violation of Canadian sovereignty, that we're outraged about China violating international law, um, about uh, all sorts of other risks and dangers that this uh, this balloon presents. No, we call in the Chinese ambassador, and that's the only sort of public announcement that we make. And I think that's pretty tragic. It's weak. I think it shows that uh, the government still does not have a real spine when it comes to China, yeah. uh, that the government is still somehow thinks that it can thread the needle when it comes to the country that poses the single greatest geopolitical and geostrategic challenge in the 21st century, a country that has demonstrated that it is looking to upend the international order that we know it, that has shown complete disregard uh, for international law, for the international community, for human, political, and economic rights, as we've agreed upon it to run the world since the end of World War II. And that has made it very clear that they believe that the current international system does not work in its favor. And so they want to overturn that system for one that works in their favor. So, you know, for Canada has greatly benefited from the system that we built after World War II. Canada left significant treasure, uh, in, significant blood and treasure. I'm just going to, uh, I'm just going to interrupt you. System. I'm just going to interrupt you to tell you that CNN is reporting that uh, one of the balloons has been shot down. I, I don't know which one it is, but the report is one of the balloons has been shot down. Yeah, so uh, it maybe uh, it came to sort of the point where uh, uh, if somebody believes that the balloon sort of yeah. poses a risk, either from an intelligence perspective or from a, okay. simply a, a navigation sort of a perspective, that uh, they decided to uh, to make that decision. All right. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.